Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And today, alongside our special guest, Greg Mobley, we are reaching back into the pre-Iron Man era of comic book movies to talk about M. Night Shyamalan's deconstruction of the genre, Unbreakable. And I will ask Greg and Adam, what can Unbreakable teach us about life and ministry and theology and in the world? In our second segment, Preaching at the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Unbreakable for this upcoming Sunday, which will be the fifth Sunday in Epiphany Year C, which is February 10th. And in our final segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share just another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. But before we get to too far, I want to introduce Greg Mobley. Greg is my friend, first and foremost, but he is also um, right now teaching Hebrew Bible at Yale Divinity School. He has written extensively on the heroic tradition in the Hebrew Bible and is currently working on a commentary on judges. And how many pages have you written on that, Greg? Too many? Yeah, 500. <laughs> So he's got some things to say about judges. We have been having a conversation about judges for the last six years. Um, Greg, it's happy. We're happy to have you here. Thanks for being here. All right, gentlemen. Today we are talking about Unbreakable, the Night Shyamalan's 2000 follow-up to his breakout 1999 film, The Sixth Sense. Once again, as in that one, we are lingering slowly through Philadelphia with Bruce Willis, though this time, instead of him working as a child psychologist, Bruce is now a security guard named David Dunn who miraculously survives a train wreck, only to realize that he did so because he seems to have some kind of supernatural healing ability. He is, as the title suggests, unbreakable. His journey of self-discovery is accompanied by Samuel L. Jackson, who plays Mr. Glass, a comic book collector and dealer who has suffered from childhood with incredibly fragile bones. Now, it's something of a trope to say that there's a twist in an In Night Shyamalan movie, and we can get to that twist, but for now, I want to leave the plot where it is, and also note that part of the occasion for revisiting this film is that it has eventually spawned a trilogy, including 2016's Split and the just-released conclusion Glass, though I freely admit that I haven't seen either of these. Nonetheless, today we just wanted to go back into the vault and check in with the start of this story. Greg, let me open up to you. What was it like to revisit this film, and, and can you help us start to think about how Unbreakable might connect to questions of theology in the church? Yes, I'm going to get a little techie at the beginning, So, because uh, I want to talk about Shyamalan and the making of the movie. This movie is remarkable because it's a filmed comic book. In style, a comic is a sequential series of still illustrations. And each illustration is inside a frame, usually some kind of rectangle. Shyamalan, in this movie, um, 
produces a series of almost comic book frames for each shot. And there are windows or grids or doorways, some kind of angle in the background of each shot. And each shot is very static and usually just kind of zooms in or zooms out. So it's as each, every shot is a frame of a comic book. And that's fascinating in itself, that he, he wanted to make the movie a visual comic book. Then in content, comics, you know, can tell any kind of story. You know, I think about when I was a kid, Archie and those Harvey comics like Little Lotta and the EC horror comics or even Classics Illustrated. But the most famous kind of story comics tell is a tale of a superhero. Um, so now I want to say something about hero tales. Hero tales in any medium, whether it's a comic book or a story or the ballad of Jesse James, um, represent pre-modern developmental psychology. <laughs> they are basically ways of telling people what it's like to grow up and grow old and assume responsibility in the world and you make it a superhero with kind of exaggerated behavior so it's more memorable. And it's interesting that Shyamalan in this movie says at the beginning that, well, maybe comic books have been here to keep alive some knowledge people have that there are extraordinary people born all the time. And that's interesting, but in fact, hero tales actually are doing the opposite. They're telling us what everyday life is like, but they're just telling it in these really big, exaggerated ways, so we'll get the message. Um, I'm going to take a breath here, but now can I move to the hero tales in the Bible? Yes. All right. So there is a little bit of a hero tale with Moses, or a, even the beginnings of a big hero tale, but soon the Moses story gets to something more important to the Bible, which is the giving of the law. So mainly there are two cycles of great superhero stories in the Bible, and they're in Judges and the Prophets. They're in the book of Judges and in, their, and in the book of First and Second Kings. And the first set of heroes are these larger-than-life warriors in Judges, like Samson, like Gideon, like Ahud. And then the next set are the larger-than-life exploits of the prophets, such as Elijah and Elisha and the various sons of the prophets. And these guys uh, function as superheroes. In the New Testament, the hero pattern continues in the portrayal of Jesus and the disciples in the Gospels, in the heroic acts of the apostles, in the apocryphal acts of the apostles. There's all these stories about other, about legends of the prophets. And then finally, the biggest uh, superhero story in the New Testament is apocalyptic. And it, um, you know, it finishes in Revelation. Revelation really is the biggest cosmic comic book um, in religion. Um, so anyway, that's a, a kind of frame for me to begin the conversation. 
So as you were watching this, I mean, I think this is a really helpful frame because what this movie is trying to do, I think, is talk about not just the where superheroes come from or the possibility of superheroes in our in our everyday life, but also how the texts that we read inform our imaginations about the world and what's possible in the world and how the world operates. And um, and so, for instance, in in this in when Mr. Glass is trying to explain to David Dunn about his um, his his powers, he has a very Manichaean view of the world. He has this sort of light and dark are in balance with each other and that there's always a villain that's going to try and um, test the superhero and that these two things are, are, are necessary in the sort of cosmology of the world. And you get the sense later when Mr. Glass says, you know, I spent a third of my life in a hospital bed reading comic books, that his understanding of the world is, um, is largely developed from the text that he had read so that the texts themselves form, uh, a moral imagination, a literary imagination, and, and to some extent, a religious imagination. Um, so as you were watching this, and as you think about the work that you've done in in, um, in the study of scripture and, and trying to understand, especially a book like Judges, in what ways is are, are, are we being formed and our imaginations being formed through the reading of scripture and in what ways is scripture itself trying to undermine some of that, even as it tries to develop it? Yeah, you can really see that in the Gospels. And there is a conflict um, because on one hand, there's, there is this story in the Bible that's like a superhero narrative where they're the forces of good are fighting the forces of evil. And you referred to it as a Manichaean worldview. And it's Jesus versus Satan. And, um, but on the other hand, there's a sense in the Gospels in which its message, and I think in Paul too, especially in like uh, 1 Corinthians 12. No, no, 2 Corinthians. Well, anyway, at the end of 2 Corinthians, where Paul is saying that the hallmarks of the Christian hero are not superhuman performance. They are uh, long-suffering commitment to the welfare of others. That The Christian hero's greatness is when they were weak, not when they were strong. So it's a a fascinating paradox in that I think to some extent the Bible has to submit to this frame we have in our minds that wants to see the good guys versus the bad guys. And it does have many elements of that story. But I think the final, the deep magic of the biblical heroic tradition is that it undercuts that by saying um, the hero is greatest when he's most vulnerable. Hmm. Matt, as you watch this movie, what was standing out to you with respect to these these themes that we've been talking about? Part of what I'm reflecting on, Greg, is, is when I hear you talk about uh, uh, hero stories and hero mythologies as um, pre-modern developmental psychology, and and there's a I, I, what what I hear in there is um, these stories are 
are, are, are ways of speaking about things that now in, uh, in, in a contemporary landscape, because of modern psychology and because of modern science, we have a, a, a firmer grasp on the reality of how human character and human, um, human moral development actually works. Um, and, and I may be I may be overstating that. It does feel like it does feel like the worldview of the film is in some ways almost reversed from that, uh, in the sense that the the conviction of of Mr. Glass, the conviction of Samuel Jackson's character, is that uh, this this modern scientific world is is actually not what it seems, and that the what what comic books are there is a is a gateway to understanding what is the quote true nature of, of of the universe which is a universe that does have these these superpowered characters in it with this superpowered level of development and so that the the modern lenses of science and rationalism have stripped away our ability to see and comprehend and realize the um the quote unquote greatness uh, or the, the the kind of supernatural fabric that is underneath everything. Um, I, I mean that that seems to be his his prophetic contribution, which is clearly um, realized over the course of the film as 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 Bruce Willis comes to realize his own his own place. Uh, I don't disagree with that. I think you're right that he he wants to re-enchant the world. Mm-hmm. At least his comic books keep the the flame burning. Uh, and when I said um, the hero stories are pre-modern developmental psychology, I didn't mean, that was just an analogy. I didn't mean to imply that that's an inferior way of kind of telling the story of person. But the, the point is, you know, they, they begin with some kind of call narrative that is some kind of emergence of self-awareness of your skill set of your personality, of your destiny. And then they, once you are self-aware, it takes you out on the road to um, uh, live and move and have your being uh, and acting responsibly with your powers, uh, you know, in just the, the most standard way to make the world a better place. So I don't want to go too much further without kind of then revealing the spoiler of where this movie goes, because I think it seems to run, it seems to be a thread that then ties things together. Uh, so if you have not seen Unbreakable and and want to preserve the suspense of it, this would be a good time to tune out for a while. Um, but for those who have, we will, we, we will proceed ahead uh, and, and note that the, the, ending of this film reveals that Sam Jackson's character, Mr. Glass, is has been on his own journey towards being an arch-villain. And, and in that Manichaean worldview, he has needed a hero to be the Batman to his Joker, uh, and, and in some ways has orchestrated the series of events that has called Bruce Willis's newfound heroism into being so that the two of them can exist side by side. Uh, Adam, let me ask you this. How does that revelation and, and the kind of the last act of the film as a whole, how does that sharpen or deepen your your theological understanding of what Shyamalan's trying to do here? I think it's a good question, Matt. I, I, I think 
as I was watching this movie again, I was really struck by the sort of understanding of purpose that is at the heart of this movie and, and where does our purpose come from? And there's a play on the title of this movie that about about breaking and what is unbreakable. And um, and that's quite literally represented in the two main characters, Bruce Willis being unbreakable, but also um, pretty broken as a human being. He's lost purpose. He has very he's a, he's struggling to find some identity. He made this what seemed like a noble decision at one point um, to preserve the relationship with his his wife. But that that relationship is severing and, and fracturing um, and in doing so left behind his um, his identity as a great football player. And then you have the literal body of Mr. Glass broken um, because of his own set of um, genetic uh, mutations. And yet, uh, Mr. Glass himself is broken. He's he he's broken because he too is lacking some purpose. He's looking for um, his place in the world, and he has assumed and he has tried to figure out, um, or he has he has guessed that his purpose is to be this arch villain, um, to be the sort of the the brain villain rather than the soldier villain, which is a, a distinction that's made near the end of the film. Um, and when I was watching it this time, I was thinking, okay, so this is this is really a this is really a movie about purpose and how once we come to that self-revelation that um, that Greg talked about or some self-awareness about where we're supposed to be, there is quite literally a baptism scene in this movie where yeah. um, where David Dunn goes into the water um, and and dies only to come out renewed in his mission as a superhero where he can finally smite this villain who's in front of him. Um, and, um, and he, he finds his purpose, um, with some help of his son, first of all, but also, um, uh, Mr. Glass. And in doing so, Mr. Glass is then able to find his purpose. And what I found so compelling about the, the, the twist at the end of this movie is that, um, Yes, it seems wild and it seems crazy and it's a twist, but there is a sort of joy and almost a sort of overwhelmed emotion that Samuel L. Jackson brings to this performance upon learning that his purpose is actually the one that he thought it was. And whether or not that purpose um, required all of this, finding that purpose required all of the sacrifice of people's lives. And yet um, it was a reminder of how important purpose is in not just the hero's journey, but anybody's journey who is trying to live in this world. Um, yeah, you know, the, what struck me about the unbreakable and the hero pattern is that almost all the movie is just about the call narrative. It is about uh, David Dunn, the Bruce Willis character, coming to self-awareness of his power. And, you know, I kept waiting for, okay, figure it out, buddy. And now let's go out and have your um, journey toward Jerusalem and, um, you know, act responsibly with your power. But that barely gets touched on. It's like the movie is just the first um, arc of the heroic tale. And we, we see him finally, you know, actualize it at the end, but we don't see a long career of, of, of him, you know, rescuing people. Yeah, and and similarly, we don't see the 
the ultimate showdown between the arch nemesis and the hero. It, right. it, it's never given to us. And I think that's a really interesting choice from, um, from the director and um, trying to figure out, okay, so what is this story about? It's a story about actualization. It's a story, a story about learning, uh, discovering purpose. Um, but the showdown that we would typically expect in a comic book or in a comic book movie um, is truncated. In fact, I, I mean, it ends in, in a very mundane way with just ending the story with some title cards over a, a still frame. And I was, there was a part of me that found that unsatisfying because David Dunn has finally met the, the arch villain, the one who has called him to his purpose so that they can do battle. And he calls the police and sends them to an insane asylum. Right. Um, how did, how did that end sit with you, Matt? Yeah, I had I had forgotten that that ending dropped that quickly. I mean, I remember the twist. I remembered this the sequence between uh, uh, David and Mister Glass at, at the um, at the gallery. My assumption had been, you know, that the imaginary sequels I had never uh, seen or or and just conjured in my head uh, were, were predicated on um, them going from that place to each pursuing their own comic booky ends that Mr. Glass would then go on to a career of villainy and uh David Dunn would would try to stop him at every turn. Uh and instead we we drop Mr. Glass directly into the asylum. Uh again, kind of Batman and Joker style. I'm sure the the idea is he keeps getting out. But nonetheless it felt it was interesting to me that I had forgotten that conclusion entirely. And that something about it didn't land. Like I'm not sure the I am not fully sure of the work that it's trying to do, except simply to, as you say, kind of recenter what the story here properly is, uh, so that it's entirely a story about um, about becoming and about emergence, and and not actually a story about um, interpersonal. You know, this is this this becomes kind of classic a man versus self instead of man versus man, despite the twist that shows up at the end. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, comics usually really move slowly because they're a series. You know, you don't uh, the Fantastic Four is not going to face off against Dr. Doom uh, in the ultimate battle in issue one. And it's as if this is issue one of something and it's really taking its time and doing it uh, wonderfully. I think that's the thing. It, it's it's almost granular in the detail, and it's a great meditation on the first movement of the superhero story. Um, and then it ends abruptly, and I, ha- I have no idea if he knew Shyamalan at the time he was going to make sequels. Um, I will say this, and this is another spoiler alert, because I've seen both sequels. He doesn't keep the arc going. He brings all the characters back. But um, the the final story won't actually be about uh, good versus evil. I think that's a good place to transition, Greg. But before we move to scripture, let me say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. Um, in a recent issue, Natty Bolts Weber um, wrote an article about talking to her kids about sex. It's actually quite winning and interesting, and I commend it to you. I think you should read it. Um, 
Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free child magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, moving on. Yeah, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we're going to look at the lectionary passages for February 10th, the fifth Sunday in Epiphany. We have the call of Isaiah with angels and glowing coals. We have Paul's reminder of good news proclaimed among the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15. And we have Luke's version of the miracle where the, the new disciples catch a load of fish and then get called into ministry. Greg, as you look through these texts, what is intersecting for you with Unbreakable? Well, the Isaiah text is a, I mean, is in many ways the classic call narrative for a prophet in the Bible. Sure. And, you know, it, I, I just love the, um, the kind of texture of it. Uh, the prophet Isaiah incredibly magically finds himself transported to the presence of God and there's God and all these cherubim and you know angel like beings and God says okay guys I need somebody to go do something and you know the angels are all kind of uh, passive you know they're they're just doing their holy holy holies and finally when no one steps up you know the little prophet little king arthur in the um in the court you know pulls the sword out of the stone and says okay send me i'll go and it's the little lost prophet who um starts on this journey of transformation and greatness just because um he was willing he was willing to do it he was willing to answer the call it, it's a i it reminds you know it's about the kind of discovering in some ways not your superpower but the the mission and then just um embarking on it even if you're not sure how you're going to pull it off right and there is i mean this call narrative is classic and what was going through my mind as I was watching this movie and thinking about this particular passage was were the other uh, major prophets. So, you know, Jeremiah gets, you know, God touches his lips. Ezekiel eats something. Isaiah has this glowing coal pressed against his mouth um, that that in each of those uh, each of those call narratives, there is this moment where the the superpower of the prophet, the words themselves are made manifest with some strange little ritual having to do with a mouth um, that have to do with the place of of where the superpower resides. And similarly, like it, it takes on a very physical manifestation. And I was thinking about that with respect to Unbreakable is that there's like that the physical ways in which the superpowers of David Dunn are, are manifesting themselves, but also the ways in which the sort of debilitating physical physicality of, of Mr. Glass is also a key to discerning whatever that superpower is going to be. Um, that his, his, his fragility means that, um, that he's had to exercise his mind or his imagination in one particular way for, for his life. The fact that he has had this unique experience where he's spent like large portions of his life in a hospital bed trying to heal has given him the ability to like supercharge his brain in a way that others wouldn't have ever had that opportunity. And so there's a sort of materialness to the call 
that shows up in like physically in the bodies of of both the prophets and um and the two antagonists in the in the story of unbreakable yeah and i think there's uh that cult narrative shows up there's some parallels there too to the luke text the gospel text where the the disciples are called by Jesus to go and put the nets in the deepest part of the of, of of the lake, and then the fish show up. And then Jesus says, "You know, now come with me, and we'll we'll go fish for people." In the sense that not not because of the same degree of bodily physicality that shows up there as it as it would in in, in the Isaiah story, but in that sense of um, the the gift that you have. Uh, the 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 supernatural gift that you have in a way now has to go find its highest and best use, yep. and the highest and best use is not fish; it's people. Uh, and 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 there's the the moment uh, in Unbreakable that just kind of locked in on that for me is uh, after David kind of c- calls Elijah up and says. Yeah, it's true. The old, the you know, the old accident I was in, um, I was never injured. This is really happening. What do I do now? And Elijah says, um, and and, and um, I'm sorry, Mr. Glass says, go to where the people are. Uh, hmm. And he and and that and that's what sends I, Bruce Willis to the middle of that train station because that is now that is the highest and best use for the physicality and the supernatural gift that he's been given. Uh, which which seems to to kind of resonate back and forth with that gospel text. Those yeah, let's are, talk. Oh, go ahead, Matt. Well, go ahead, Greg. Because those are both such great ideas. I, I really love that. There's a couple. I just want to get a couple quick things in. Number one is, you know, it is interesting. This is Elijah is the name of the person who awakes the um, Christ figure, you know, as the forerunner. And the the second theme, which one of you alluded to earlier is, you know, in uh, Bruce Willis's character struggle with, he had to decide, is he going to resist his superpower and just be a family guy? And that just goes to the loneliness of the prophet in the, in the Bible, in Jesus, the sense that you have to walk a lonesome valley, that finally you have to risk losing um, turning away from uh, uh, conventional comfort from family in order to fulfill the mission. I think, I, uh, yeah, and what was so interesting about, I want to talk about that scene where he goes to the train station and is amid everyone, but also kind of that lone figure who's sort of stretching out his hands so that he can begin to touch the people so that he can begin to sense the world. And I mean, there's, it's, it's a moving scene, but it, it also is maybe the darkest scene in the whole movie because the superpower is, is a burden. Greg, you told me something a long time ago where you said that like one of the words that is used to describe prophecy in the old Testament is often burden. Is that right? Yes. Masa, the thing you carry, your burden becomes your prophecy, your superpower. Right. And and it was just so striking to me that he doesn't get any visions of the nice things that people do to each other. Right. He only receives the visions of the terrible things that are happening around him or that have happened recently in the in the past. That he sees the deepest, darkest, 
most insidious demonic demons of of these people's lives. And there was a part of me that that was very taken aback by that this this time because that type of burden seems heavy because you are only ever in touch with the the very deep shadow side of the world. And yes, that gives you opportunity to try and remedy it. But it also means that like there were three or four different visions that he had before he settled on the the vision that he was going to go and remedy that he couldn't change that that nothing happened. And I don't know, I felt I really felt the burden and the weight of that in the midst of the movie in a way that I was I was kind of unprepared for watching it this time. Yeah. the And I've been reading Habakkuk and the um, you know, Habakkuk says, Lord. Uh, there's injustice and the Lord says, yeah, and there's even more to come. You must become ever more aware of the, uh, of the struggle. Uh, And it's Mm -hmm. as if, you know, part of the responsibility of the prophet of the hero is to keep their eyes open to the, you know, to the full horror of what's going on and not lose hope. And I wonder if that's what the what the heavenly vision of Isaiah is is trying to um, balance a little bit. I mean, narratively is like how how do you sustain a ministry where you keep your eyes open to that sort of that unrighteousness um, without something that to sort of tether you back into the um, back into the world, whether it's um isaiah in the sort of heavenly court of god whether it's christ at his own baptism where he sees the the heavens opened and and god sort of proclaims the the goodness and the belovedness of jesus or whether it's these disciples as they sort of begin to experience some miracles that might begin then also to prepare them for the the deep tragedy that's to come in the cross and i think it I think it circles back to to when I mean, we began to allude earlier to the way in which this film plays with themes of strength and weakness, uh, which shows up throughout Paul, of course, but it, it shows up in this reading from First Corinthians too, as he identifies himself in this list of apostles that have seen the resurrected Christ, and then uh, and identifies himself as as the one untimely born, you know, kind of the 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 lowest and least. Of the of, of this chain of apostles, uh, I, I of course elsewhere in Paul's writings, he 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 spends considerable time trying to kind of dissect and uh, deconstruct some uh, more Hellenistic ideas about what constitutes strength and what constitutes weakness, uh, and I, I think that duality clearly preaches well through the lens of this film because we have these two characters that are so identified by physical strength and physical weakness but i also wonder whether or not the 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 strength that david's character ultimately displays is the strength of being able to hold all of that prophetic knowledge that he then has to absorb as he walks through um uh, 30th Street Station or whatever train station that's supposed to be. Uh, and, and I wonder whether or not the the, the, the the inverse is also in some ways true for Mr. Glass. Uh, that, 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 as you've already pointed out, his, his strength comes out of 
the bodily weakness that he's had that has developed him into into this kind of cognitive superpower. So I, I do think I, th- I think the First Corinthians text helps get towards that. Maybe not as strongly as some of Paul's other writings, but that that hint is clearly already embedded here of how he's going to play with that duality over time. I think that's a good place to end the conversation, Matt. Um, as we move into our last segment, this is the time that we say goodbye to Greg and thank him for coming on and talking with us about Unbreakable. Greg, thanks for being here. It's long overdue. We'll have you back soon. Great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Greg. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and this is just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? Well, my postlude kind of follows on the week and the strong, and I'm I'm curious whether you watched the Rent Live musical on Fox. I I didn't even know this was happening. I would have watched it. I love Rent. So this is it's been an interesting conversation, uh, um, because specifically because. Uh, uh, famously, now the lead actor who was playing uh, Roger um, broke his leg at the finale of the dress rehearsal that was Saturday night, and then Fox the 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 show was supposed to air Sunday night. They had filmed the dress rehearsal, and so Fox makes the decision on Sunday to air the filmed dress rehearsal instead of the live show for the first eighty five percent of the show. And then only in the very last act of of Rent, when Roger um, comes back from his spirit quest and Mimi shows up at the door, um, they actually did that live with Roger in a wheelchair, actually sitting on a table um, for that part of the for that part of the performance. Uh, uh, And and this has been uh, widely denigrated, partially because it it was very it's very clear watching the the tape delay parts of the show that the actors are saving their voices and that they're not they're not fully in it because it's the dress rehearsal and and and, and they're going to be live three days from now or something right like that. and, and yeah. um so, and you can kind of tell that they know that it's not live and so my experience of watching it was like uh, this feels like it's at about 65% of where it needs to be and then when they actually do come out and do that last piece live it's like oh this is this is what it was supposed to feel like the whole oh, time. Uh, and, and allegedly the reason they made the decision they did was because uh, the, the, the cinematography, the camera work that had been so carefully blocked what revolved around Roger being able to walk around the stage. And so like, how can you, <laughs> how can you redo that in a day? Uh, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, at it's the same time, like situation. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, the folks who came to the show saw them perform a live version of it with Roger in a wheelchair. Uh, so they did that live show for the for the audience that was in the studio. Got it. Yeah. And and on Twitter, you and you can find like iPhone clips of that show that is clearly far superior to what we saw on Fox. Uh-huh. And so it's it's a really interesting moment because I do think there's a theological take here on 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 strength and weakness, and what the, I mean you know the the easy answer is well they should cast understudies, you know Broadway's known this for a long time. Uh, on the other hand, there's something there was some opportunity there, um, 
uh, to show a character in a wheelchair uh, uh, able to fully participate in the narrative and then for that person to um, um, be taken out of it sort of to everyone's loss feels like uh, something that desecrates where Paul, what, Paul, what Paul wants to do with weakness and strength. Huh. Yeah, uh, and so I I, th- I think there's a way for churches to use that story to remind themselves of who's supposed to be at the center uh, and uh, who's supposed to be lifted up. Uh, no, and... I, it's such a it's such a interesting situation, and I I'm hearing you talk about strength and weakness. I'm also beginning to think about it through the lens of worship and yeah. how often our planning. Um, begins to supersede our imagination and our ability to see what might happen because of some unexpected consequence that we could have never accounted for or never really wanted to. But um, is can we cultivate theological and liturgical imaginations that see this new wrinkle as perhaps a strength, as Paul says, right? Like, right. like my weakness is my strength. This thing that... that causes great consternation and fear might actually be the thing that opens up some new way of doing a worship or liturgy or the world or relationship that we never would have done had it not been forced upon us. Yeah. And part of me feels like if you're going to say that you're doing a live show, you have to do a live show and the, the the cost benefit of doing a live show is that you run the risk of having to improvise something. And if your, your sense of it being live is, well, it's going to be live as long as everything goes perfectly for us. And as soon as something doesn't go perfectly, we're just going to run the tape. Well, that, that doesn't feel live to me anymore. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. Yeah. That's, that safety net is actually preventing Uh the type of, improvisation that that creates real magic uh-huh yeah um that's really interesting if you want to see the the the, the better filmed version of this on on youtube you can go and find um the the last broadway performance of rent that is that is filmed with cameras moving th- pretty pretty uh, aggressively through the stage of the broadway theater it does not look like someone sat in the back with the camcorder and filmed this thing. Uh, it's pretty well done. And that's a guy, a, an amazing cast in it. Uh, uh, and I, I, I recommend that to you. If, yeah, the, if, 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 if the Fox one, which I'm pretty sure is on Hulu now, doesn't quite scratch the itch. Anyway, that's what I've got. Adam, hit me. Okay, so um, I, uh, I'm reading Huck Finn again. I, this book is has an interesting history in my life. Um, there, there are really two books that began to form a literary imagination and a love of sort of thinking of and interpreting text. Um, and they were both assigned by the same teacher. I had an English teacher who was both my 10th grade English teacher and my 12th grade English teacher. I read uh, Huck Finn in 10th grade. And, um, and the the prompt for the essay that I was supposed about to write about Huck Finn was, um, is Huck Finn a racist book? Which at, at 16 years old was, um, was a question I don't think I was prepared to answer with any real understanding. And yet I think it is responsible for 
um, introducing me to the consequence of literature, the ways in which people are portrayed in literature, the um, a whole bunch of literary questions that I had never even considered with respect to reading and um, and story. And so I'm like deeply indebted to Martha Topic, my English teacher, for that. Um, the second book is Crime and Punishment, which um, was what I read in 12th grade and also assigned by Martha Topic. So uh, I, in many ways, owe quite a bit of my own faith and the way that I practice Christianity to my my English teacher in high school um, for her ability to like treat text with some real honor and care and love while asking hard questions. So I've, um, I have picked up Huck Finn again, in part because um, I, I remember it so fondly as in, but I wanted to reconsider it. And it is so hard. It is a very, very um, it's a troubling book in a lot of ways. It's it leads to more questions than it has answers. It has this, this, um, this initial section where it says, don't try and make any moral conclusions from this book. Um, then it is, it has so many moral questions that it asks. And, um, and I'm thinking in particular about this, this question that continues to come up in the book of Huck and Jim, Jim, who is a runaway slave and Huck, who is this sort of feral child and any number of different times as they are floating down the river, Huck has this opportunity to give, um, to turn Jim in so that he would be returned to, um, Mrs. Watson, who is his master. And she would then sell him to new Orleans. Um, and what I think Twain is doing in the book is he's he's pitting what is Huck's sort of developing conscience versus some like moral center or moral heart. And these two things are always warring in the main character where where Huck is always asking questions of like, well, I know the right thing to do is to turn him in. But then he goes and has this opportunity and goes, I guess I can't do the right thing. And there's this moment that's quite, um, quite beautiful where he writes this letter and he's going to turn Jim in and realizes um, that in writing it, he feels absolution. He feels forgiveness and he feels like he's, he's been um, washed clean. And then he thinks about all of the times that Jim um, was his friend and cared for him. And then he tears up the letter and says, I guess I'll go to hell. Um, which is a sort of deeply moral thing. Right. And that, that, that picture shows up in other places in literature too, in Chusako Endo's Silence, in, for instance, um, which my wife pointed out to me recently. Um, but that that image has been sticking with me, even as the book then takes all of these strange turns, even as it is, it, it, the language of it is so startling, especially with respect to the sort of racial terminology that's used. Um, and then finally, the last act of the book and the ways in which Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn play with the life of Jim. Um, all that to say, I don't have, I don't know if I should have read this at 10th in, when in 10th grade, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was, um, I, it was deeply formative to me. And yet I come back to it thinking that I would, I could, I should be able to answer the question of whether or not this is a racist book. And I don't, I can't, I don't know. Um, and maybe that's as, as Twain wanted it to be because he is a sort of like slippery figure to begin with. Um, but I commend people to read it 
as adults and wrestle with what it's trying to do because um there there's there's something there and i've not yet totally figured out what it is and so yeah so the fact that literature can still twist you and tie you up in knots and um is a beautiful thing i think so that's that's what i've been thinking about this week with respect to my reading of huck finn well, I'm I'm thankful that there are books we can go back to and discover things that were not available to us to discover when we first read them. And I'm, and I'm grateful that there are English teachers who assign things knowing full well that 15 and 17 year olds will never be able to fully glean everything that's in there, um, especially because with a work like Huck Finn or Crime and Punishment, probably nobody is in a position to... to to, to fully extract all of it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad for teachers who assign us things that are a couple of degrees above our level. Cause that, that seems like the right, <laughs> seems like the right and proper thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So thank God for market topic. Yeah, indeed. All right, folks, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Kimmy Schmidt, Dead or Alive. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.